This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. That the theme uh, song from the old Spider-Man TV show back in the 1960s. Actually, it was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. We're talking about Stan Lee, the Marvel Comics former editor-in-chief and the creator of some of the best-known superheroes, died on Monday at the age of 95, Spider-Man being one of them. Also, uh, Iron Man, the Hulk, Black Panther, and others. He was a visionary, creating or co-creating characters that have really stood the test of time. Stanley's love of comics started when he was a teenager working as an office boy at Timely Comics, which ended up being the precursor to Marvel. He was creating characters even up until his death, according to his daughter, J.C. Lee, who says they were actually collaborating on a new superhero. Marvel obviously has had a huge box office success, releasing 20 films in the last decade that have grossed a combined $17 billion worldwide. Walt Disney bought Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion in 2009. Stan Lee has even made cameos in every one of the Marvel films as well as some of the TV shows and the video games as well. I guess one person can make a difference. Enough said. That from the Spider-Man 3 film in which uh, Mr. Lee made a cameo in as well. With more on the career of Stan Lee, we're joined uh, on the phone by David Betancourt, who's a Washington Post reporter covering the comic book industry with its Comic Riffs blog. And also joining us here in studio, Robert Berry, who's an artist and educator here at the University of Pennsylvania who teaches courses like Making Comics and Reading Ulysses. David, great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Nice to meet you. Thank you. His legacy, uh, David, kind of encapsulates what do you think his legacy ends up being upon his death on Monday? Uh, I think it's kind of split into one, you know, Stan is the co-creator of some of the most iconic superheroes of all time, many of whom really kind of made their mark in the 60s with the co-creation of Spider-Man, Black Panther, the X-Men. Uh, Thor, Daredevil, characters that still to this day have a, a, a strong ring in pop culture. But also, uh, the thing that stands out to me the most about Stan, especially seeing him enjoy all those cameos he made over the last two decades of his life, is Stan always knew that this, this current era of entertainment where superheroes are such a huge part of so many things that are being adapted, Stan always knew this was possible. And he was knocking on Hollywood's door way before Hollywood kind of woke up and realized that superheroes could be big business. Robert? That's absolutely true. Um, Stan's legacy as a creator is going to meet with some controversy because of the process that they used, but there's no question that he was a major force that moved not just comics, but all of popular culture into the big business world that it is today. The $17 billion you talked about yeah. is only for Marvel Studios. That doesn't even touch... The money that they those characters made for Sony and for Fox and other things along the way. So how big do you think his impact was, if there's a way to put a financial number? And, and again, with all the comic books that, that were created and the value that those have had over the years as well. I mean, it would have to be, I would guess, probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars? Oh, yeah, I think so, easily. I mean, he if you consider that the 
kind of creativity that was fostered by the um at least the illusion of the early Marvel bullpen um, that led to the sort of creative explosion that happened in comics right. uh, a few years after. If you factor into what that did and how many of those people that grew up as we did during the Marvel age of comics have gone on into creative endeavors and started their own comic companies and yeah. started their own and how much effect it has on the media, it's impossible to say. I mean, his contribution to pop culture could be measured in the, on the level of what's Homer's contribution sure. to storytelling. You mentioned bullpen, and, and that's part of the story about Stan Lee is the people that he worked with, and it's also, to a degree, some of the controversy as well. Yeah, of course, there's tremendous controversy surrounding it and a lot of reasons to recognize um, Stan's contributors with a little bit more merit than they were given by the machinery of um, of the company as it started to look at licensing and franchising out, um, where Stan was given sort of sole credit by the company for a while, and then it ran in the face of some of his co-creators along the way. Um, but I, I think it's important to remember that um, when Marvel Comics began 57 years ago with Fantastic Four number one, um, they were the best analogy is they were like a garage band. There was only really one big production studio that was that eventually became DC Comics, um, and their methodology over at Marvel took off to such a degree that it allowed creativity for guys like Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby that they never would have found with other editors along the way, and were struggling to find. David, your thoughts? Uh, I agree. You know. I still remember it kind of being a big deal uh, in the Spider-Man movies when Steve Ditko, uh, who was Spider-Man's co-creator, was credited as one of the creators. And, you know, that's something that was fought for uh, for a long time. And if anything, the dynamic of that is now when a new comic book arises and is a big deal and gets adapted into something, the writer and the artist are are given credit. You know, the writer, of course, is, you know, steering the plot. And, you know, there are some artists that do their own writing as well, but generally you have a writer and an artist. They both get credit for it. You know, Stan uh, did kind of unfairly receive a, a lot of the credit in the early days, and not much credit was given to the artist, but it was definitely a two-way street, and it was definitely a 50-50 thing. Uh, Stan had these great ideas, but would he have executed them as visually well as Steve Ditko, who many would argue that the Spider-Man superhero suit's one of the coolest superhero suits ever created? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the same with uh, Jack Kirby and all they did together uh, with the Black Panther. You know, the Black Panther might have looked completely different if they told Stan, "Hey, well, why don't you doodle something and see what you see what you get?" So there, there's definitely, you know, it's it's good that we got to this point because those artists, rightfully so, especially Ditko and Kirby, they're legends. Uh, got the credit that they received, but at the same time, Stan is still a very big part of it. And, and there's uh, there's an element of, of Stanley kind of being that person out front, David. That was he was kind of the promoter for a lot of what was going on. Stan, Stan was the ambassador of the brand, and who, and who's to say as much credit as those artists deserved? Being an artist, any, any comic book artist will tell you it is time consuming. Now, I follow a lot of artists today on social media, and they've got time for a quick tweet <laughs> or Facebook post. So, here's something I drew. 
but for the most part, your time is heavily consumed. So Stan kind of took it upon himself, put it on his shoulders, to be really a salesman of this culture because for so long comics were considered just kid stuff. And I think that's one of the things that Stan was able to accomplish when Marvel started getting bigger and bigger. It, it, it was uh, to defeat this notion that comics are just just for children and are juvenile and are not something that adults can take seriously. Stan was an adult. It wasn't until his 40s that he really started getting into his groove. And he loved these characters. And I think that's the one thing more than anything that people appreciate about Stan is how genuine he was about how much he cared about these superheroes that they had created and wanted to share with the world. If I could expand on that a little bit, David, um, one of the things that you mentioned was sort of the burgeoning adult audience and the perception of comics as being a kid-driven, here's its, you know, 10-cent plague on our nation and our literacy. Um, Stan was the first one to really recognize that there was an older readership and the, the Marvel comics really took off in college campuses in, in its early That's days. Right. It's it's recognizing that there was an interest in these characters and having them grow and be sort of a richer um, interior life than maybe the competing characters over at DC had historically been. That really turns them into an interesting style of modern fiction that caught on for a whole generation of new modern creators. You know, David, uh, your colleague Michael Kavner wrote a, a piece in the Washington Post uh, after Stanley's passing, and the headline really caught my attention. And it basically said that, that Lee made people feel like they were part of the club. And I guess part of that is that promotional element, but there was an element also of making this this alter world feel like it was part of the everyday culture. It was all about being a true believer. That hmm. was Stan's uh, big phrase. You know, hey, true believers, the, the soapboxes, the, the letter pages at the end where he would not only thank you for coming along for this Marvel adventure, but let you know that you were part of a community that cared about these characters just as much as you did. And well, they were, in a, I'm sorry, they yeah, were in a way kind of dodgy and alliterative and um, and a little self-deprecating, which is a kind of a good thing for a teenager or yeah. a young college-bound kid to read. For sure. Well, I, I find it amazing that when you think about what we've seen in the last decade or so with all of the films, it has basically bridged the generations. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm somebody that, as I mentioned, I grew up you know, reading the comics and comics and seeing some of the TV shows and, and grew to love it. And now I have that through the films, but I'm also able to pass that down to my son and my, and my daughters as well. So it's a, it's a unique dynamic that has kind of developed with the development of all these films over the last decade or so, Robert. Yeah, I think so. I think actually one of the most, everybody's eagerly anticipating the last installment of the Avengers that's yeah. supposed to be coming out. And I think the what we never expected is that the most heartbreaking moment will be Stan's last cameo. That's true. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. David? So. I would agree. You know, it's it's such an uh, amazing time right now, but I, I also think timing had so much to do with it. You know, I'm old enough to remember, well, at least there's a syndication, uh, the great Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, mm. Incredible Hulk series, sure. which is really ahead of its time uh, in terms of conveying how great a comic book story could be adapted to live-action television. Um, But in that same way that George Lucas kind of waited a long time for the Star Wars prequels, sorry to bring those up into the conversation, (laughs) but, uh, you know, he wanted to wait for special effects to catch up. And I think by 
superhero cinema really kind of took off in 2000 with the first X-Men movie and then 2002 with that first Spider-Man movie, which is one of the most groundbreaking superhero movies ever. But they were also at a point where they had the special effects to be able to visually convey all the spectacular things we see in all these panels that if they would have, you know, as, as much as Stan was knocking on the doors back in the 70s and 80s, had they decided to go for it, because look at some of the horror, you know, before Marvel Studios and Fox and Sony, Marvel was known for pretty horrible movies, and it was kind of the laughing stock because DC was able to get Tim Burton's Batman and Christopher Reeve's Superman. But if you go back and look at uh, the old Captain America movie that used to come on HBO every now and then, or that yeah. uh, Dolph Lundgren Punisher movie, those weren't really uh, what Stan had in mind, I guess, per se. So I, I think timing is just as much a part of the success as well. And I'm and one of the things that made me happy, and I wrote about this, is I'm glad that Stan lived long enough to see that era. And I really think once it took off, it really gave him a, a it was almost like a fountain of youth and a new new lease on life. From a business point of view, I think it would really be interesting to chart the growth of the CGI industry and the ancillary studios that are involved in making these movies oh, and yes, how they've succeeded. Without them. Yeah, that I mean, if it yeah. wasn't for the the Marvel movies and their cross continuity to kind of hold it together, they would have been battling against one another. There wouldn't be any great leaders, and yeah. they would have lost all that those creative people to the more you know profitable at world of gaming as opposed to uh, to big screen blockbusters. David, what has been the the impact having these films in the last decade or so on the comic book industry? I think now, um, as someone who, you know, I do what I do because obviously I love comics. I've been reading them my whole life, almost as long as I've been alive. Uh, But it would be foolish to not say that all that is happening in entertainment, whether it be cinema, whether it be streaming, whether it be network television, animation, uh, that has kind of taken over when it comes to superhero culture. The comics are still very much necessary. Why? Because not every TV producer, not every director is going to know, you know, that the Silver Surfer was the Herald of Galactus. You know, that's something that, you know, you it's it's very finite information. So the comics are still necessary because, you know, you've got to get your story from somewhere. And the comics that yeah. are being produced today are so good. And I think that's really kind of what's being overshadowed is that we're in this golden era of comic books that don't sell nearly as well. You know, back in the 90s when X-Men comics were selling a million issues, you just don't see those numbers anymore, in part because of raising prices, but also because, you know, kids that are younger than us, a lot of them are getting their superhero exposure from live-action entertainment. And the other part to it is the fact that when you think about bringing these characters forward, Robert, you've got decades upon decades of characters and character development and story angles that have played out in all of these different comic books. And there is still such an incredible wealth to be able to to put onto film, even if you wanted to go that route. Yeah, it's a problem of the increased popularity of um, the Marvel Universe and really of comics in general that 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 knowledge that people have on a common level doesn't really necessarily lend, lead them back into the comic shop right. or make them buy right. comics. And I think David's talking a little bit about how many great comics are being produced. But the fundamental drive is the same, that comics at its core is still really big ideas in small boxes on pieces of paper. 
they're mm-hmm. controlled by sort of a singular style of vision and mm-hmm. your imagination as a as a creator and as a reader is transported into those boxes this is the best proving ground of stories and cinema and big business anyone could ever possibly hope for it's so much easier to take and think of and construct a big story and start to put it into comics even though it takes a long time to produce as david said yeah um it's so much easier to really visualize that in comics and for other people to kind of go right in there with you than in other forms of media. David? I agree. You know, it's we haven't seen the impact, as you mentioned, just Marvel and, and the billions of dollars they've made just with Marvel Studios, not even counting uh, Sony Spider-Man films or Fox's X-Men films or the Deadpool franchise and things like that. You know, honestly, I also think one of Stan's living legacies will be the fact that we're getting a Deadpool Christmas movie. I mean, how great is that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, has, has there been the impact? No. Obviously, if there was an impact, I think comic sales would be much higher than they are. I, I think I think the comic book industry itself is still very much, you know, dedicated readers who had it passed on from a family member, been doing it for years. I, it, it's hard to say how many people have said, you know, I just saw Infinity War. I want to go read the Infinity Gauntlet miniseries. Yeah. Yeah. Not to say that there aren't people like that. There there should be people like that. I know that when I see movies based off of comics I read back in the day, I go back and read them. Uh, but the, there hasn't been that uh, migration of people from movie theaters over to the comic book shops. What do you think then has also been the impact when you look at Marvel in comparison to, to DC and, and those – that genre of superhero what impact has all of this success that marvel has had had on on that brand because when you look at it from the film perspective it's really night and day the success level that that marvel has had in comparison to the dc films and that's really funny because if you looked at it from a comic book standpoint right now some might say that dc has fine you know because it's always back and forth and it's always going to be kind of 50 50 in terms of readership and fans and who you know it's a rivalry right uh but but some right now would say that on the comic book side dc comics is doing a little better than marvel who's had a little bit of controversy with their new editor-in-chief and things like that but none of that matters because marvel is killing it cinematically right now so much so that they literally had an effect on how dc made their movies dc came out with man of steel and had no intention of it being anything other than a new superman franchise and we're so overwhelmed with the success of Marvel's connected universe that built up to an Avengers team that they tried to rush to it and just build that with Batman vs. Superman. Oh, here comes Wonder Woman. And then, oh, here's Justice League. And it didn't work because they didn't take the, the time. So there's, there, there's been a huge effect on DC because, you know, post-Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movies and one really good Wonder Woman movie, they haven't been able to get it right yet cinematically. Robert? Um you know, the issue with DC is they've certainly made some extremely bad choices trying to catch up. Um, and that's kind of a history between the two companies for a while. When Marvel came in and sort of changed the game, DC was constantly the bigger ship that was harder to turn and was yeah. having trouble, you know, keeping up with these new young voices. I think, though, what you're talking about, David, is also like we need to separate in our head what it means as the owners of these companies and what it means to make money off of the figures, the trademark figures as yep. they are. Yep. Um, 
and whether or not they're making more money in the comics world or in the in the broader media universe, certainly Marvel's way ahead of the game. Yeah. And there's really not a lot of reason that, that Batman has ever slipped as low on the spectrum of being recognizable as as he and Superman are now, yeah. other than the bad choices that were made. Well, and, and having the Disney brand behind Marvel certainly helps them quite a bit, I would think. But Warner Brothers owns its own network. True. Yeah, that's true. Right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And they've put out a series of TV, TV shows. shows around yep. all of this for years, yep. tailored to a young buying audience. 844 Wharton is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney, L-O-N-E-Y-21. I guess then the question playing off of that, Robert, is that does that gap between those two continue because of the fact that Disney talks about getting even more into streaming and having their own service, and they're obviously going to have all of these films available in that realm, and then Warner Brothers has to kind of come back and, and try and figure out their own uh, their own uh, path that they can try and do to, to build out those brands even more. Well, Disney, of course, you know, um, is the media super giant. There's just nothing more colossal than what they're able to do with all of the properties they got when they bought Star Wars and when they bought Marvel. They already had your daughters and they started coming for your sons. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And you're sewn up into their universe. The The advent of, of streaming as a new way of receiving your media and binge watching and all of these things that are attached to it um, means that they're going to be able to put that all in one store and these other companies like Netflix are going to suffer from that, I believe. But I think DC's made a strong idea and a good step forward in coming up with their own DC site that relates to comics, merchandise, the films, the backlore of films and TV shows that they have all available in a subscriber base. So yeah. that could be a really interesting utilization of their of their full library. David? Everyone wants to, everyone wants to stream now. You know, Disney's going to have their app, Disney Plus. DC already has DC Universe right now, um, and the key is going to be the the live original content streaming uh, shows that will bring people in. Because you know, people like us who are fans of comic book culture, there's kind of like a reckoning coming to our wallets, and that's going to be how many of these streaming apps are we going to be able to pay for monthly? You know, it used to be, you know, okay, well everybody's got a Netflix account. Well now. Disney is slowly yanking everything Marvel away from Netflix to go to their app. DC, you know, if you want to watch the new live-action Titans, you've got to go to DC Universe and pay for their app. So um, everyone has kind of realized that, hey, you know, we can kind of the, – the culture is that strong now that we can all kind of make our own, you know, apps and, and you know, it's almost like Field of Dreams. You build it, they will come. When – in the 1950s, when comics suffered – um, because all of the buying and spending money and all of the interest in, in, um, in storytelling had shifted to television, the creators went there. You know, all the guys that had been working in comics in New York went out and started doing sure. TV shows. The writers started doing They took Superman with them. Yeah. And Superman as a TV show was tremendous and sort of was the only thing that kept DC afloat was that cross-branding that happened. Yeah. We're going through another sea change right now, 
in how media is delivered to us. But I think it's really unique that these big companies with all of these big trademark properties behind them are interested in shifting with it, but also interested in making sure that their creators come along for the ride. They're, they're interested in – DC and Marvel are actually more interested in new ideas than they have been for 15 years. Right, and that would seem to be the case if, if Stan Lee at age 95 was even thinking about a new character to bring you know that next that next level of the process. That's that – that's that great generation of, of workhorsemen. Sure, exactly. Know? Yep. David, thank you very much for your time. Robert, nice meeting you. Thank you for coming in. Nice to meet you. Thank you, David. Great to talk to you again. Thanks a lot. You got it. David Betancourt from The Washington Post. By the way, you can follow his work, the Comic Riffs blog at uh, The Washington Post. And uh, also many thanks to Robert Berry from here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 